0: Welcome to Winning Slowly, a podcast about culture, technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho, and I'm Stephen Carradini. and today we're
1: going to talk about link bait headlines. Listen to we're this podcast. talk about
0: some things
1: that you don't even know. Listen to this podcast, and you will hear two guys talk about interesting things. You'll never guess what they are.
0: The third one's going to blow you away. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to talk about that and how that on the one hand is good practice and on the other hand is bad practice.
1: It's good practice in the sense that it works. It's bad practice in the sense that we hate it.
0: Yes. And so that's an interesting tension for us is because there are things that work and are successful that are not necessarily even that ethically (laughs) bad. Technically, Um, there's no one is, is being enslaved by clickbait headlines um but th- there's just a way of doing things that we like and we don't think that's it.
1: So I read an article a couple of weeks ago in which someone basically talked through how he gave an article to I think it was Salon and it was he uh gave them a particular headline and then they turned it into a link baity headline that actually completely undermined the point he was trying to make in the piece. And so he wrote which a follow- It's
0: is the, the prerogative of Salon to reheadline their articles however they want. Definitely. It's a common editorial thing.
1: Definitely. And as a writer, you fully expect that your things get reheadlined. It's uh uh-huh. part of the business. What right. made him grumpy was that the reheadlining, well, it presumably drove more traffic to Salon, but no one actually seems to understand the piece. Salon got what it wanted out of it, which was more a eyes.
0: controversial headline.
1: Yeah, and therefore more eyes on ads. hmm But he spent his whole time trying to explain things he didn't say. It happened to be an article about Game of Thrones and recent controversy about portrayal of sex and rape and so forth. You know, a big deal, and you want that kind of thing to be carried on well. Salon went for clickbait instead of let's carry on this conversation well, and he was understandably grumpy about that. So he wrote a follow-up right. piece on Slade and... We'll link to that in the show notes. What caught my attention was the reality that a headline can shape your understanding of the entire piece that follows, even if the actual headline to piece that follows is completely non sequitur, as it was in this case.
0: Right, and that's something that's really interesting to me as a person who has been an editor and a writer, um, who has been on both sides of the table, is that when you're reading this article as an editor, You've got a couple different like competing things that you're trying to evaluate. Like what is this article about? How does this article fit into the edition or the scope of the publication? Um, How are we going to get the most people to read this? How do we be truest to the article itself? It's just a a really complex sort of system that if you've never been an editor on the writing side, it's like I put a headline and y'all erased it and put something different. (laughs) And that was crappy um and so there is some complexity here um that goes um unnoticed or unseen by a vast majority of people who are actually you know even writing these sorts of things like this is a um a podcast that's almost entirely going to be directed at people who edit headlines <laughs> um, which is kind of bizarre but it it does have we some told you you would never
1: guess what we were going to talk about
0: <laughs> we're gonna talk about headline editors um. <laughs> But there is going to be some larger application, like why this sort of thing matters and how this how this relates to people doing all sorts of different types of work. So, but that's that's a particular problem is that there's a lot of different competing um, things, ideas that have to be parsed through as you're looking at a piece of writing as a headline writer.
1: And one of the most fundamental of those in the current shape of the web is how do I get people to click on this link? so that people will look at ads so that we can keep our website in business.
0: And Upworthy figured out that if they don't tell you what the article's about and then tease you with something that might be in the article, then they'll get you to read it more often than not, which is psychologically sound. Like if you tell people some things that they seem that they would like, but you don't tell them the rest of it, they're going to want to know what the rest of it is. Like this will make you cry. Everybody's going to want to click on that because they want to know if they will actually cry or not.
1: It is, as Stephen pointed out in a conversation we had about this a couple of weeks ago, extremely effective psychologically. That's why Upworthy and BuzzFeed and everyone else who has jumped onto this bandwagon in the last year, ugh, I even saw CNN doing it several times in the last three or four months. Everyone who's mm. jumped onto it has because, well, it works. You stir up curiosity and then you satisfy that curiosity with a little bite-sized morsel of content that, well, it answers that and then supplies a whole bunch more of the same kinds of things. So it's really, really effective in terms of driving traffic to your site, as well as in keeping people on your site when you show them a bunch more of the same kinds of things. And to some extent, that's fine. I mean, if you want to look at pictures of cute kittens jumping around being adorable all day, that's that's cool. I guess it's probably not and, how I would spend my day, but I don't mind looking at pictures of cute kittens sometimes.
0: And but there there are other uses of mm-hmm. this sort of headline, and in its best formulations, um, like things on Upworthy that aren't cute cats. Um, they're often topics that wouldn't get a lot of you know focus or. Uh, wouldn't get a lot of coverage. Um, And so it's, you know, putting a sort of misleading headline um, gets people to go and look at things that if there was a regular headline, you might not go and look at, um, which is, you know, kind of in that gray area of truth in advertising versus (laughs) advertising in truth, you know? (laughs) And it really drives to
1: one of our big concerns, you know, one of the things Stephen and I talk about a lot and one of the things that really runs kind of contrary to the ethos of winning slowly, and that is we don't think the ends necessarily justify the means so the The point Stephen makes here is that you know upworthy a lot of times is trying to get people to look at things they would not otherwise look at that might be important, and so the goal is a good one. the goal is. Let us get people examining things they might not otherwise. Let us get them interested in topics they might otherwise skip over. These are good, good goals, but the approach is fundamentally utilitarian. And mm-hmm. that is, of course, very typically American. Uh, mm-hmm. We are Western. The, yeah. Uh, not very just American, Western and Western. quintessentially American. The ends there we go. justify the means for us more often than not. And so. It's not a surprise that we see this, but I'm not sure it's what we should say is good or the best way about getting people to do or care about those things.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's like I said, it's a it's a slippery sort of um lots of fish to fry sort of <laughs> problem. Um there's there's always you know lots of variables going on. Um unless we, we end up in a, a longer conversation about the, um, you know, the merits and um, validity of various types of monetization strategies for journalism, um, the, <laughs> that's the a very basic,
1: long conversation, very
0: long conversation. Um, lest we end up there, the best thing to say about the monetary end is that this works and it helps out. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a, you know, philosophical, ethical standpoint, It is a little bit sketchy it is a little bit um kind of annoying after a while and so there has been some pushback on this sort of headline so a lot of people still click it but a lot of people um chris being one of them refuses to click on whatever it is because of some sort of moral indignation about (laughs) the the state of headline writing in america it's Um, so bad And so, you know, I, I, as a person, again, who's been on both sides of the table, I feel a little bit less consternation towards it, but it is, I can appreciate his, his, um, honor bound cry of, um, that's not the way it should be. And so it, it is an important thing to think about. Like, why should we take a more boring path, a more traditional path, a more, um, a path that's less likely to get people to click. Mm-hmm. Um, why should we do that instead of something that, you know, works in ways that people expect? And that's a tough question because if you're faced with, you know, again, a business model, how do you justify doing the right thing in a non-moral zone? Cause this is a non-moral sort of area. Um, right there's than...
1: there's no commandment in the Bible that says thou shalt not write overly catchy but psychologically tricksy headlines.
0: Right, it's just not there. So <laughs> so, so we're out we're outside of, the, of of a moral zone where it's like why should you do the right thing in a tough situation because it's the right thing. Um, right we're, here we're we're, we're arguing
1: about what is the right thing.
0: Right, right now we're arguing that why should you do this thing that seems less <clears throat> effective, seems less you know, organizationally sound, um, but is potentially more honest and real to the person who's attempting to read it and i think that's a tough of, question
1: it it is, and I think part of the answer is if your goal is to educate and inform is to help people care about the things that perhaps they ought to care about more. And so here I'm talking more about the Upworthies than the Buzzfeeds of the world, because right. th- these sites really do have very different aims. And right. much as I you know, am likely to disagree with the voices on Slate, mm-hmm. Slate has a very different aim than does Salon. They're very different kinds of publications. And so right. grant that from the outset. So let's say we're talking about the Salon's And the BuzzFeeds. Well, I'm just going to say, I don't really care for much of anything of what you're about. Do whatever you want with your headlines. I'm just not going to click it. But if we are talking about Upworthy, if we're talking about The Atlantic. CNN. Right. I care about it there because one of the things you're trying to do, at least in theory, is provide information to people in such a way that they come away with more than just that little psychological itch tickled. Uh, scratched, I should say. If you tickle an itch, that's probably not going to help much. You're just going to be doubly uncomfortable. (laughs) Yep. Uh, But come away with that psychological itch scratched. You want them to be informed. You want them to be better equipped to make good decisions about things, whether that's political or ethical or, hey, maybe this cause over here needs support. And, you know, one of our go to ideas is that if you're doing those kinds of things if you're pursuing those kinds of genuine goods in in the old philosophical sense then the way you go about it ends up shaping the good itself uh the the thing you provide is not entirely separable from the way you provided it to to throw it in media analysis terms you know, how often have we heard, rightly so in some ways, that the medium is the message. And so Blue
0: McLuhan. That's
1: right. Here we are again. Uh I think we referenced him in episode zero one and zero awesome. twelve, he's back. Yes. And he's not going anywhere because you can't talk effectively about the way that rhetoric and content affect each other without talking about him at this point. And that's part of what's going on here. If you're if your clickbaity headline is indistinguishable, whether you're Upworthy or your Buzzfeed, at some level you start sending the message that your content is the same kind of stuff. Right.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a place where your use of a particular tool colors whatever else is inside it. Mm-hmm. So your your tool use is becoming inseparable. And in some places, even replacing the actual thing that it's supposed to be supporting. So you end up having a inverted sort of um, structure for how people process your your ideas. (laughs) So instead of seeing the headline as what leads you to the rest of the article, the headline then becomes the rest of the article. Mm -hmm. So the the headline is the main thing and the article only serves it instead of vice versa.
1: Um, and mm-hmm. this
0: is what? Go ahead. Uh, this is extremely common in, in other fields as well. And I was about to make a transition there. But if you got another idea, go oh, for I it. I was
1: just going to note that the article I referenced at the beginning of the show is exactly that. The headline became the article to the extent that what the guy actually wrote didn't come through at all to most of his audience.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's a big problem, and I think that's a, a thing that happens in other fields as well um where the uh, the thing that's supposed to serve the you know the larger thing becomes the thing, and in some cases this is what we want like a sports team name becomes the organization essentially mm-hmm. like the you you mean something when you say the Lakers that doesn't mean a bunch of people who swim in lakes. <laughs> <laughs> like the Lakers has become the basketball team that is in Los Angeles. Um, and so on that level, it's good. But in things like, you know, if, uh, you know, a politician becomes one stance, so he uses this particular stance to attract a, um, you know, a group of people to vote for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to name any stances, but y'all know what I'm talking about. There are about.
1: lots of them on every side of the aisle imaginable.
0: Right. You use one stance to get a bunch of people to vote for you, and then you you have to be that stance. Like, you can't just say, like, oh, yeah, I was just saying that so that you would vote for me. Um, yeah. I mean, so you, you kind of get boxed into you have to now go and do that. And some politicians genuinely are, you know, interested in those sorts of policies, and that's what they want to do and more power to them. But there's a lot of politicians that end up, you know, either abandoning those things that they campaigned on, which is, the, you know the bane of the populace um that votes them in um or um they get stuck being whatever it was that they said they were gonna be, and they can never go on to do other things and so it's it's this very difficult dance that um you know you've gotta be authentic in some ways um but not overly authentic <laughs> but not not authentic enough. It gets very confusing.
1: Right. And I think ultimately what we come down to, whether it's in politics, whether it's in media, whether it's in the context of how we carry ourselves as Christians in the public square or Christians Mm -hmm. in the private square of our churches, Mm -hmm. is we want to behave truthfully and truly. And one of the concerns I have with the BuzzFeed style headlines is that and upworthy and wherever else i think sometimes they end up being truthy at best but they're not really true
0: Mm, they've Uh, got truthiness yeah steve gilbert
1: and they're not really concerned so much with conveying truth as they are with getting you there and for upworthy that's or someone like that, that can be doubly tragic because of the way the medium and message get tangled together. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. your aim to do something actually true and good, or you as a politician, your aim to get elected because you generally want to see certain kinds of reforms, or, you know, we could move on down that list. Those things can get co opted by your rhetoric if you're not careful that your rhetoric comports with what is good and true. Right. And right. so. You know you have to be constantly striving to do what is right, but also to communicate what is right and to communicate in a way that is right
0: yeah and that's and that's difficult because there are some ways that you have to communicate um, in various different spheres that make it difficult to be both you know, accurate and truthful mm-hmm. to the way that you have to communicate in that sphere, mm-hmm. as well as to the ways that you want to communicate that information, um, and that's a very large topic that I, we don't have time to unpack. <laughs> but you just think about that. There are ways that of communication that make it difficult to talk truthfully and accurately to the way that this medium wants you to act, Mm -hmm. and to the ways that you want to actually personally communicate.
1: And I think a great example of that is a a Republican sitting down to be interviewed by Keith Olbermann or a Democrat sitting down to be interviewed by Bill O'Reilly. Either way, you're going to have a hard time communicating accurately what it is that you're trying to do because you're you're sitting down and communicating in a medium that's essentially hostile to your ability to speak truthfully because right. the aims of the other person interacting with you aren't that right and so yeah making the kind of decision to communicate truthfully in that context anyway is number one that's the right decision but number two it's a thing that you have to be really really thoughtful mm-hmm. about how am i going to do this it, right it it is good and necessary to take that first step to affirm that, yes, I'm going to do this. No, I'm not going to write a clickbaity headline, even though it would be easier on my business model. Mm-hmm. But then what am I going to do instead? Because I do need right. to do something. I do need to communicate these realities.
0: Right. Yeah. So I think that we're, we're both pushing on this idea that just because, like we said at the beginning. Just because something works perfectly and isn't morally wrong, doesn't mean that it's ethically the best thing to be doing mm-hmm. in terms of being honest and in terms of um, being authentic, in terms of being, um, you know, a good communicator of uh, of truth, but also that upholds, you know, what we expect communication to do. Mm-hmm.
1: So, and I think ultimately what we want to take away from this is the very idea that we want to take away from every Winning Sully episode, which is that doing it right may not pay off in the short run. You're not going to get as many clicks. You may not be as popular politically. But in the long term, the rewards are more than worth it because you're going to be building genuine, lasting goods instead of short-term successes. And that matters.
0: Yep. Yep, I agree. Well, this has been episode point 12 of winning slowly's zeroth season Mm
1: -hmm. slowly but steadily getting there all of our content is licensed under a creative commons attribution license which means you can do essentially whatever you want with it as long as you say you got it from us you know be truthful about it our music at the beginning we haven't picked yet so we'll put that in the show notes and tell you about it then yeah until next time, I've been Chris Kreitchow.
0: And I am and will be Stevie Caradini. Thanks for listening.